Welcome to the show. We have Dr. E. Michael Jones with us again. Dr. Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of numerous books, including Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality, and the recently released Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. Dr. Jones, thanks for coming on again. You're welcome. Good to be here. So our topic for discussion today is on your book, uh, the, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which is now in, in its uh, second edition. Right. Along with uh, Logos Rising, it, it is a crucial text in understanding human history since the coming of our Lord and um, very important in understanding our times. So I think we'll start with the title because there's so much to unpack there, the, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. So what what is what is revolution? Let's start there. What what is revolution in a, in a general sense? Yeah, it's it's a problematic word because if you live in America or in Iran, revolution is a good word. It's a complimentary word. You're a good person if you're a revolutionary. But if you're talking about world history, you're talking about uh, you have to say, well, what's the revolution about? And uh, that's why the beginning of the Jewish revolutionary spirit is so important. Uh, I wrote this book uh, in 2003, I began doing the research in 2003, when the, uh, the Jewish neoconservatives had taken over American foreign policy. These were the descendants of revolutionaries. Uh, to be specific, uh, Bill Kristol uh, was the son, one of the main warmongers in America at that point, was the son of Irving Kristol, who was known as the father of neoconservatism, and he was uh, uh, then known as a conservative, but in the 1930s, he was a Trotskyite, which means he was a uh, supporter of the Soviet Union, the radical wing of the Bolshevik uh, takeover of, the Soviet, of uh, Russia. So at this point, I began to feel that political categories were meaningless and that there was some type of deeper grammar to what we were talking about. And that led me back to the, uh, the beginning of uh, the Jewish revolution, which was uh, when Jesus Christ arrived on this earth and the Jews, instead of following him as the Messiah, uh, rebelled against him, they had him killed. Now, when you kill Christ, Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate. That's what St. John called him. Logos is the order of the universe. And so revolution in its fundamental sense means a rebellion against God's order in the universe. Even the re revolutions... Uh, like the American Revolution or the French Revolution or even the Russian Revolution, all of these revolutions appeal to some type of uh, divine order or, or uh, fundamental order. And they're all claiming that they're going to restore that order through the revolution, even though the exact opposite often, often comes about. So uh, the fundamental understanding of revolution is uh, an attack on the order created by God, which is known as Logos. I mean, historically, we, we've had several instances of anti-Logos in, in human civilization, be it the, um, the Aztec human sacrifice, the caste system in India, usury in the, in the Roman Empire, child sacrifice to Moloch, Sodom Gomorrah. Uh, did these come about as a result of some form of revolution? Yes, yes, the revolution was known as uh, Adam and Eve. They were the first two revolutionaries, and they rebelled against the order created by God. 
okay, by defying God's command and uh, 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 eating of the forbidden fruit. That created a catastrophe for the human race. The man uh, who is describes this well is Vico, who was trying to write a uh, about the logos of human history. There's a whole chapter on Vico in this, in the Jewish in the logos rising. Uh, but uh, what we're talking about here is the fall. So obviously uh, Adam and Eve were not Jews. The Jews didn't come into being. Uh, let's put it this way: the Hebrews did not come into being until Abraham. Uh, which we're and we're talking about roughly 3000 BC. Uh, all of the the, cu the cultures that you mentioned, specifically India or uh, Egypt, these are ancient cultures. They're much older than than the the Hebrews. And the culture that we're talking about there, uh, India specifically, is the result of the fall. So what you have is fallen human nature. Uh, Vico has a whole story about how the family came into being because of sexual shame. Uh, the family coming into being led to the creation of property. Uh, property could now be held because the uh, the father knew who the uh, the mother of his child was, because before that you just had random sexual encounters in nature. And this is the slow, gradual return uh, to Logos. Uh, that Adam and Eve lost. So it's a long process that took place over time in various places, and it was a, a very fragile. So uh, to talk about India, India, I don't know when you talk, uh, say the beginning of Indian culture was. I mean, I, I, it seems to me it's around 10,000 BC, where you have that Harappan uh, culture along the, the Indus River. Uh, this is ancient. It's, it antedates uh, the Hebrews by about 7,000 years. And so you had, at this point, human cultures trying on their own to get back to the rationality that Adam had simply by nature, uh, without a struggle. Perfect balance, you know, your passions were under control, and now you're struggling to get back to that. Now, obviously, uh, given human nature, given fallen human nature with no possibility of uh, supernatural aid, the, the grace that people need to have successful lives, uh, you're going to see failures. And I think the failure in India uh, could be manifested in the caste system. Now, uh, our friend uh, Ravi uh, has written an article in which he just, he thinks that the caste system came about because of usury. In other words, usury is as ancient as mankind. It's a fundamental way of exploiting people. Uh, debt becomes a prison. And instead of working to uh, relieve debt, the upper class, uh, the, uh, the creditors, simply turned it into a religion. And that became the caste system in India. And you were part of this uh, uh, lower caste, and it was part of nature, and you would never get out of it. Right. Um one of the consequences that you always mention after a uh, successful revolution is that it, it leads to a civil war. In, in Logos Rising, you mentioned the, uh, the Achaean conquest of the entire Aegean, and that led to a civil war, which was um, memorialized in Homer's Iliad. And uh, you mentioned how the Iliad can be understood uh, to be Homer's study of the um, etiology of disorder. So is um, civil war 
always a consequence of disorder in the wake of a revolution. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is this was the the story of of uh, mankind. It's not. It's in the book of Daniel as well. This constant. Uh, you're talking about the Middle East, uh, the Aegean, one army after another coming and, and conquering uh, and then being conquered again. This this endless sequence of military conquest, destruction of civilization, struggle to come about and then military conquest again. The, the Homeric epic is particularly significant because uh, the, the, it, it was probably based on fact. Uh, it, uh, but uh, it happened probably around 1200 BC, and the consequences were so devastating, it destroyed civilization in the Aegean. Civilization simply stopped uh, around this time, around the time of the Homeric epics, and uh, everything went backwards. And so you had the, the Mycenaean civilization that reached a certain point, they actually had writing, and then it disappeared. Uh, there was a point where you had Mycenaean palaces on places like Crete, uh, and they were not protected. They were just simply there. The people were prospering because of trade, agriculture, and so on and so on. And suddenly they got wiped out. And the next thing were fortresses. You had to protect yourself. I think this was the outcome. What happened during this period of time is that uh, writing was forgotten. Uh, whatever writing existed simply was forgotten. The uh, the Homeric epics were kept alive simply by poets who had memorized it and could speak it, could sing it uh, by memory and uh, passed on from one generation to that because there was no writing, no civilization at that point. And then gradually, once again, civilization started to make a comeback uh, around 800 BC. And at that point, the Homeric epics got written down, and that was the beginning of uh, the rebirth of the Greek language or the, the birth of the Greek language in writing. And that allowed uh, a significant advance in, in Logos, in the understanding of the universe that began around 700 BC with uh, the rise of what we call philosophers, philosophy. Uh, they were really physicists. Who were trying to, who had an understanding that there was some fundamental unity to the universe, uh, and trying to come to some type of understanding of what that unity was. There was some unity that was linking all of this diversity, and Thales was the first one to make it a stab at it. And he said, "It's water. Water is the fundamental unity of the universe." Now, these were people who were handicapped by a lack of abstract thought. Abstract thought had not really made a, a, an entrance into human history at this point. And so you had, for example, the Egyptians who had ha already had a long civilization. Their writing was pictures. They, they, you know, you put little, uh, uh, the, the hieroglyphic word for cat is a picture of a cat. This is picture writing, this is primitive. Uh, and so they're handicapped by this, and they're trying to come to, to some type of physical understanding of the universe, which is going to go nowhere. I mean, this is not this is not something that died out then. It died out in Greece at that time because they lacked the instruments to really examine the universe. They didn't have the microscope. They didn't have the telescope. And so they had to wait another 2,000 years before that happened. And uh, But they continued. And so, you know, Anaximedes... Uh, Anaxagoras says, well, no, I think it's air. 
and now you're getting more abstract because air is not something you can see and air is something you breathe into yourself and it's it's related to uh, your understanding of the soul. So spiritus is the Latin word. It's for spirit, for breath, for soul. All of these things are related now. Now you're attaining a higher level of abstraction, much more than water. And then uh, to take it to its next step, you had Heraclitus uh, around 500 BC, who was a Greek living in a Greek colony in Persia. So obviously influenced by uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, uh, for that religion saw a symbolic uh, significance in fire. And so Heraclitus says, no, it's fire. Uh, so you've got three of the elements, the fundamental elements, water, air, fire. No one said earth. Well, uh, some people did say earth, but basically uh, these are fundamental elements and we're heading towards something uh, abstract. And I think Heraclitus made the breakthrough by saying, Fire is like logos. He used, he's the first one to use logos as the term for that common denominator. Fire is like, if you take a candle flame, it's always the same and it's always changing. Uh, he mentioned the river. You can't step into the same river twice. The river is always the same and it's always changing. This is the fundamental paradox of existence in time. He understood it. Uh, but they couldn't take it any farther, as I said, because basically they didn't have the instruments to do so. And so it, it kind of fell dormant. At that point, the Greeks decided, let's talk about uh, uh, law. Let's, let's argue. Let, the sophists took over. Let's, let's have knowledge that will have a practical result where we can make a lot of money because we can win lawsuits. And that's where Plato and Aristotle and Socrates came in. Interesting. Um Getting, getting closer to our topic, um, let, let's talk about uh, the Jews. So the, the word Jew is, uh, is multivalent. It, it can mean different things in different contexts, uh, even in the Gospels, in, in Paul's letters. Jews, um, in an ethnic sense, in, uh, in the time of our Lord, would, would include the Lord himself, the Blessed Mother, the Apostles, the initial converts. But then the, the Jewish identity after the death and resurrection is defined by the rejection of, of Christ or any, anything but Christ. So who, who is a Jew? How, how do we define that term? Yeah, this is an important question. And uh, the, the, the key document is the Gospel of St. John, which is also the key document in terms of Logos, the appropriation, the Christian appropriation of the idea of Logos. But uh, the, a classic passage would be, uh, the parents of the man born blind refused to speak out of fear of the Jews because the Jews threatened to expel from the synagogue anyone who said that Christ was Lord. Well, if we're talking about an ethnic group or DNA, they're all the same. These people were every bit as Jewish as the people who were persecuting them. But by the time you get to the Gospel of St. John, Jew is a pejorative term. There's only one instance where uh, uh, salvation comes from the Jews. That's not pejorative. The other 70 times the word Jew gets mentioned is pejorative. And that's where I'm saying you, uh, you, have to, you have to understand this to understand Jewish identity. It's pejorative because Jew means rejecter of Logos. Jew means rejecter of Christ. That's the definition. That is, I'm saying, the definition to this day, to this day. That's the only thing that defines what a Jew is. 
You can't get this from talking to Jews. The Jews will never give you a straight answer, largely because they themselves are confused. But then isn't there also um, a, an ethnic sense to it? As as a collective, they, they reject Logos, because if it's simply uh, a theological category that means rejecter of Logos, wouldn't that also include someone like um, Nietzsche or Lenin or, or Foucault or Antonio Gramsci, but they wouldn't be defined as Jews, right? Well, it depends on how you define a Jew. And I'm saying, well, I call the book The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit because we're not talking about something physical here. Uh, anyone can adopt the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And the, the book is full of groups like the Puritans in England who were Christians nominally, but uh, behaved like Jews. Okay, the, the crucial, so you, how do you define uh, uh, the Jew? Okay, uh, a Jew is someone who is born of a Jewish mother. Okay, you have to be born of a Jewish mother. So that's the end of the story, right? Well, no, it's not the end of the story. And that's the story of Oswald Rufais, a Polish Jew uh, during World War II, uh, a double agent. He gets caught. He hides out in a Carmelite convent. At that point, he converts to Catholicism. And then later, he becomes a priest. Then when the war is over, he decides to go to Israel. And he wants citizenship. And they turn him down. Well, wait a minute. Why did you turn this guy down? If being born of a Jewish mother is the criterion for being a Jew. Well, that's not the criterion. You have to be, it's the necessary, but not sufficient condition. The sufficient condition is adopting the Jewish revolutionary spirit in some sense or other. And the point here is uh, becoming a Christian is a rejection of the rejection of Christ. And they understand that. And so basically they turned down Oswald Rusfeisen, even though he had impeccable DNA credentials because he had become a Christian. So now when you get to the real understanding of it, uh, Jewish identity is anti-Christianity. It's a completely negative identity. It is rejection of Logos. Now other people can reject Logos, okay? And generally when they do reject Logos, they become quasi-Jews or crypto-Jews, uh, because that is the fundamental manifestation of anti-Logos in human history. And so if, when Christianity broke apart in Europe, the Protestant groups uh, almost invariably became Judaizing Christians. Uh, there also seems to be a, a spiritual or maybe a, a true understanding of a Jew is, right? I mean, uh, St. Paul in Romans 2, 25 to 29, I'll, I'll read part of that. Uh, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise, not from others, but from God. And, and Christ, again, in Revelations 2, 9, uh, he says, um, I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a, a synagogue of Satan. Right. Well, this, this is addressing the fundamental uh, discontinuity in human history, which is basically that the children of Moses, now to broaden this thing to a non-polemical term, who are the children of Moses? 
This is a debate that goes on in the Gospel of St. John. And the Jews at this point have completely disregarded what uh, St. Paul has said, and they say it's physical. They say we are the seed of Abraham. We have the right DNA. And Jesus Christ rejects this argument. He says, uh, if you were a child of God. Now, there's a difference between a child and uh, a, uh, a chemical. There's a difference between a child and a D DNA. A child acts according to will, according to reason. DNA does not. And he's saying that the true child of Moses is one who accepts Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, the true continuity in history is that the Catholic Church, uh, Christians, those who are baptized, are the children of Moses. And those who call themselves Jews are liars. And now those those people are known as the synagogue of Satan. Uh, and that's the, the fundamental, the confusing issue here, especially when you get to these uh, uh, Christian Zionists who now think that the Jews, uh, the Jews are still the children of Moses and there was no discontinuity in history. That's part of the confusion in American politics right now. Yeah, but St. Paul is also clear in um, Thessalonians 2.15, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and have persecuted us and please not God and our adversaries to all men. Yes, I read that passage to a, a, a graduate student in theology. I, I said to this lady, who said the Jews are the people that killed Christ and are enemies of the entire human race? And without missing a beat, she said, Adolf Hitler. Now, that shows you the state of the church right now, that a graduate student in theology was unfamiliar with the writings of St. Paul, in particular 1 Thessalonians 2. That is precisely the source of crisis in the church right now. <clears throat> there is no one, I'm going to go out on a limb here, there was no one in any position of authority in the church right now who will stand up and say, the Jews are the people that killed Christ, and they are enemies of the entire human race. The Catholic Church right now is in crisis because it can't proclaim the gospel. But it, but it's not like the Catholic Church hasn't addressed this, right? You have popes like Gregory the Great, saints like uh, John Capistrano, uh, Vincent Ferrer, recently Saint, Maximilian Kolbe. St. John Chrysostom. We could go on and on and on. St. Augustine, the fathers of the church, the gospels are unanimous in their understanding that Jews are the enemies of the entire human race and certainly the enemies of, uh, of Christianity. That all changed with Vatican II uh, and the initiation of Catholic Jewish dialogue, which has basically alienated the Catholic church from its own teaching. The Vatican II is... Um, you know, an official part of the magisterium. It's it's a it's an ecumenical council. Um, what did Vatican II say that got misinterpreted? Okay, we I deal with this in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. There was a plot. Uh, there were two plots to subvert Vatican II. One was the CIA involved with John Courtney Murray, and that was Dignitatis Humanae. They wanted the church to uh, uh, espouse separation of church and state, didn't happen. The second one was the Jewish plot, and that was uh, the man who was involved in that was Malachi Martin, who was working for two Jewish organizations, the American Jewish Committee and B'nai B'rith. And the goal was to absolve the Jews from any responsibility for the death of Christ. 
That's what they wanted to do. You can't get 2,000 bishops together and expect them to endorse something that St. Paul said as a fundamental uh, doctrine, what we already said, 1 Thessalonians 2, or what St. Peter said uh, in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles when he shows up in Jerusalem. He says, you killed Christ. The Jews are cut to the heart. They say, what must we do to be saved? He says, you have to be baptized. So it didn't work. I am not questioning the validity of these documents, but if you go back to Nostra Aetate, which is the statement on the Jews, there's a statement there that says the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that the church has to endorse everything that the ADL has to say, the Anti-Defamation League? There, in the, when Roe versus Wade got overturned in the United States, the anti-abortion, uh, the abortion decision, Jews immediately said abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. And then the, it kept, went from there to if you're anti-abortion, you're anti-Semitic. So does that mean the Catholics now have to be pro-abortion? No, this is the problem that the church has gotten inv itself involved in, not with these documents, Although that document has to be clarified. You cannot make a statement like the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism without defining anti-Semitism, which is precisely what they did. That's what they did. Now, whenever there's an ambiguous statement, it has to be interpreted in light of tradition. And that would mean going back to the root of anti-Semitism, which is a form of biological determinism. So, uh, yes, the church opposes all forms of biological determinism when they're opposed to Jews, but it does not oppose, uh, let's say, criticism of Jews. Are, are Christians free to criticize Jews? Do, Jew, do Christians commit a sin if they criticize Jews? This is something that we have to ask the authorities in the church right now. Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then tell me how Jesus Christ committed a sin, because he criticized Jews. Well, we're not allowed to follow Christ's example in this. This has to be defined. We have to get this out in the open, because this conflict, this ambiguity, and this failed experiment is crippling the church right now in its evangelization message, and also in its ability to defend the moral law. One of the things that we all learn as um, Catholics is um, all sinners in some senses responsible for the death of Christ. Uh, you actually mentioned um, paragraph nine, 598 from uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the book. I'll read that out here because it's interesting. Um, in her magisterial teaching of the faith and in the witness of her saints, the church has never forgotten that sinners were the authors and ministers of all the sufferings that the divine redeemer endured, taking into account the fact that our sins affect Christ himself. The church does not hesitate to impute to Christians the gravest responsibility for the torments inflicted upon Jesus, a responsibility which they have all too often burdened the Jews alone. And it goes on to say, we must regard as guilty all those who continue to relapse into their sins, since our sins made the Lord Jesus Christ suffer the torments of the cross, those who plunge themselves into disorders and crimes, crucify the Son of God anew in their hearts and hold him up to contempt. And it can be seen that our crime in this case is greater uh, in us than in the Jews. 
so it does acknowledge that uh, the Jews have some responsibility um, in, in the death of Christ, but it seems the emphasis um, is is with uh, humanity in, in general, right? Now, now, yeah, you quoted that, and it it is a sophisticated, uh, more sophisticated understanding of that idea. But the crude way that it always gets rolled out is that someone will say, well, sinners are responsible for the death of Christ, uh, not Jews. Well, that's a category mistake. What you're saying, in effect, is there are no Jew is a sinner. Well, who said that? So obviously, you have to include Jews in that category of sinner. Otherwise, you're not uh, dealing with reality. And then once you include it, then you have to understand that the Jews did have a special historical role in the death of Christ. So it's it's easy to be resolved. But the point of that passage that you just read, which was created after the Vatican II, is to defend this failed experiment called uh, Catholic Jewish dialogue, and it's to combat what they their understanding of anti-Semitism. No, it has to be clarified in the way that I, I just explained it. Um, I'll read one more uh, scripture quote, this time from uh, Romans 10, 2-3. I readily testify to their fervor for God, by, but it is misguided, not recognizing God's saving justice. They have tried to establish their own instead of submitting to the saving justice of God. So St. Paul seems to acknowledge their zeal for God, but, but then they also paradoxically reject God, right? Right. That's the essence of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. You've got the zeal uh, that is completely dislocated uh, from, from Logos. Uh, and so it manifests itself in things like the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, communism, which is a kind of Christian heresy. You're concerned, you know, the communists at least talk this way. They're concerned about the plight of the poor. It happened at a historical moment in uh, Europe when the working class was simply had no rights whatsoever. So the communists, uh, what the Jews do is they leverage this Christian message into something that becomes an attack on Christianity. That's that's what's happened. They're taking the Christian understanding of it and turning it upside down and using it as a weapon. Now, Jews, even if they're in rebellion against Logos, they, they do have Logos due to the fact that a human being is a creature of Logos, right? They, they have a language, they have their own cuisine or their own music, aspects of a culture which, which requires some degree of Logos to subsist. They, they also have the, the Torah, the Tanakh, the moral principles, and there has been attempts to integrate Greek thought into rabbinical Judaism by Maimonides, you know, uh, who has influenced um, Aquinas and Danskotas. So, so how do we properly understand that? Well, in order to lie, you have to be able to speak, right? I mean, the fundamental manifestation of Logos is human speech, it's language. Well, you can't lie unless you have speech. So everything they do is, in a sense, kind of a parasitic on the good that God created, that God gave to them as, an, in a sense, an irrevocable gift. Rationality is an irrevocable gift by God. You cannot escape rationality. But you can escape rationality. You can thwart rationality by sin. 
It's obvious because free will is something that God gave you as well. It's a fundamental part of rationality uh, because it's connected to the human will and God allowed you to choose the good. Human beings choose the good. That's the only, and they choose the good because they're rational creatures. That is the only way they will be saved. Salmon do not choose to have sex. No animal chooses to have sex. Biological mechanisms control the animal, and that's missing from human beings because they have to choose the good. So you can thwart the good because you can choose the good. Because if you couldn't thwart the good, you wouldn't have free will. And if you didn't have free will, you would be uh, an animal and there would be, in a sense, uh, a, a, a higher dimension. The full meaning of human history would be lost. God could have created everything uh, a, a senseless animal, but he had a bigger plan. And that's part of uh, man's plan is the deliberate choice of the good as opposed to being compelled to do something. Um, so what's the role of uh, the Talmud and the rabbi in, in, in Judaism? Well, the, the, this began, uh, so what I said, it's the Jewish revolutionary spirit that reached culmination or fruition within 30 some years of the death of Christ. He predicted it and the Jewish people became totally revolutionary. They were seized by revolutionary fervor and they rose up to overthrow Rome and they were crushed at Masada. They all committed suicide and that wasn't enough. They had to do it again uh, 60 some years later under Simon Bar Kokhba and they were crushed again. So at, at one, at the, 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 uh, the, at this point, uh, a rabbi sees the way things are going. He has himself smuggled out of uh, Jerusalem in a shroud. He goes to the Roman general and he says, I'm a friend of Rome. Grant me a favor. I want to start a school. And that's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He starts the school at Yavna. That is the beginning of what we call Judaism. It's younger than Christianity. It is the antithesis of Christianity. And the codification of this new religion is the Talmud which is an endless disputation. So the Jews no longer, they have no priesthood, they have no temple, the temple was destroyed in 70, and they have no sacrifice. These are the three things you need to fulfill the covenant. They can't fulfill the Mosaic covenant anymore. And so now they created a debating society and the written codification of that pointless debating is the Talmud, which comes into existence uh, about 600 years after the death of Christ. Um, well, what are your thoughts on Maimonides and, and his work? He's doomed. He is doomed uh, to irrelevance because of his rejection of Logos. The, 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 this is, I, I used this image before. Uh, Logos in history is like a train. It's going through human history. The train will stop at your station and you, you have a choice. Either you get on the train or you get left behind on the station. That train, the crucial stopping point was when St. John wrote his gospel in Greek and basically uh, absorbed the Greek tradition of Logos into Christianity and created a synthesis between the Hebrew scriptures. Hebrews had history, but no philosophy. The Greeks had philosophy, but no history. And now Christianity has 
philosophy and a theory of history that is the most powerful force on earth. And that becomes the cutting edge of Logos in human history. So there were people who tried to do it on their own, like Philo of Alexandria, a very educated man, a Jew who simply could not accept the Logos incarnate. Now, there is a bump here in the road uh, because uh, what you're saying, in effect, is you cannot achieve your own salvation. This was the essence of Platonism. St. Augustine tried it uh, 400 years after Christ. Uh, basically, you're going to uh, otium liberale. You're going to remove yourself from the world. You're going to contemplate essences, and you're going to rise up to the world of form. Doesn't work. Augustine tried it. He was weighed down by his concupiscence, by his desires. Uh, he couldn't do it. But the bigger point is it's not necessary to rise up because Jesus Christ came down. Now, the problem here is that you're now admitting that you can't achieve this Logos by your own efforts. There has to be, this is the whole point of the incarnation, the whole point of God intervening in human history. It is not philosophical. Something greater than philosophy. Philosophy has to accept something greater than itself in order to remain philosophy. And that's precisely what happened. The guys who tried to do philosophy without the Logos incarnate failed. Philo is a better example, but uh, that's Maimonides as well. Um, what are the characteristics of a, a Jewish revolutionary movement? Uh, uh, hatred of the uh, existing order, hatred of any existing order, hatred of the social order, hatred of the moral order, uh, a, a life dedicated to overthrowing uh, the culture of every country where they were accepted. Uh, the codification of this is known as tikkun olam. Tikkun olam means healing the world. That means the Jew has a right to wreck your culture by espousing sodomy or pornography or abortion or Zionism or whatever it is, the Jew has a right to destroy your culture and he feels good about himself. He thinks he's a great man because he's wrecking your culture. This comes about as a result of the destruction of the temple. The Jews expiated guilt through animal sacrifice. They have no animal sacrifice now, and the only way they can expiate guilt is by projecting it onto you, onto the dominant culture, and saying, you're all a bunch of anti-Semites. That's why you don't like us. We're noble people. We're trying to bring you to a higher level of consciousness. They are masters at projecting guilt. Uh, a lot of the book, um, oh, you've already alluded to the, to the Judaizers. A lot of the book isn't even directly related to the Jews, but it, it talks about the Judaizing spirit. So uh, well, what are the differences between the Judaizers and the Jews? And is it like a spectrum between um, uh, Judaism and Christianity? No, there's no spectrum between Judaism and Christianity. If you're talking about some type of gradual movement of one to the other, there's a, t a complete break. Uh, between the two of these things. And Jude uh, Christianity is the religion of Moses, and it replaces an obsolete covenant, okay? Uh, let me give you an example. I was just back in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pennsylvania. 
Philadelphia is where I grew up, and there are all of these Catholic schools. I went to one of the private schools, private academies, um, largely in the suburbs now. A lot of religious orders took over, ran uh, nuns. Nuns ran schools for girls. They were all single sex schools. I went to a single sex school for boys. Uh, and uh, what happened over this period of time is that the nuns all became feminists. Feminism is to nuns what whiskey was to the Indians. I mean, the Indians over here, not over where you are. You know what I'm talking about, the Native Americans. Uh, they couldn't resist it. They got intoxicated. They went crazy. And then they, they, they just went out of existence. And so feminism is a Jewish revolutionary movement. It was created by Jews because they now decided to bring class conflict to, to the family. Let's divide the family. The same way Marx divided classes, now the, Jew, the feminists are going to divide the family. Betty Friedan, they're all, it was basically the founding mothers of this movement were all Jews, but the Catholic women's orders adopted it in a kind of crazy death wish. So they adopt feminism. Well, you become a crypto Jew the minute you become a feminist. And when you're a crypto Jew, you believe that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. And so as a result, what happened? You, you brought about the moral corruption of all of these Catholic girls in places, traditionally Catholic places like Philadelphia, because first they got involved in the sexual revolution and then they got pregnant and then they had an abortion. When you, abortion is a Jewish sacrament. If you have an abortion, you have become a Jew. You act like a Jew, you think like a Jew, and the most importantly, you vote like a Jew. And so you have a situation in Pennsylvania now where you've got this, a, cat, a, a guy with a vowel at the end of his name, an Italian, uh, some, in some sense Catholic, but at least by heritage, and a Jew, Josh Shapiro, who is a flaming hater of the Catholic Church. How is this going to go? How, the Jews are never a significant part of the vo uh, voting population, but every woman who has an abortion becomes a Jew in some extent because they vote like a Jew because the Jews are the ones who defend abortion and they allow them to calm their guilty conscience by political action. Interesting. Um, your, your account of the, the Hasides, the Anabaptists, the Puritans um, in, in the Jewish revolutionary spirit is, is really fascinating to read. But well, what about Islam? It has roots in the Judaizers and the heresies that, that deny the Trinity. It has uh, a bit of docetism, Nestorianism. They accept Christ, but not as God and not as the Logos incarnate. It's um, voluntaristic uh, at its core. It also seems to have a, a global scope spread by violence and, and, and conquest. So, so what's your thoughts on Islam? Yeah, that was uh, another example of uh, the train leaving the station. Uh, the train, uh, actually, the, the Muslims uh, had the uh, Greek thought before the Christian West had it. You had people like Averroes. Aquinas learned about Aristotle by reading Averroes, who had that. So the big question is, why didn't science develop in Islam? Why did it develop in the West and not in Islam when they had a, a centuries of head start? 
Well, uh, it's because of Islam. Uh, because uh, first of all, you're, you're right. Islam is a it's a cut and paste job. The Quran. The, I hope I don't get uh, murdered for doing this, but basically, there's. I was asked to uh, to come to Iran to uh, talk about the first shura of the Quran, and the first shura of the Quran. It's not a beginning. The, Genesis has a beginning. In the beginning. God created heaven and earth. Gospel of St. John has a beginning. In the beginning, there was Logos. Quran begins with a shura about mercy. Well, this is kind of an odd beginning. So I called up my friend who was the chairman of the uh, Islamic studies program at the University of Warsaw, and he said, it's a Syriac Christian prayer. Islam cannot withstand scriptural analysis. As soon as the, we get to serious scriptural analysis, the Quran is going to disintegrate as a kind of cut and paste job made up of uh, Hebrew scripture, largely Hebrew scripture, a uh, little bit of Christianity, all mixed in, uh, as, as strained through the ear uh, of a group of people who were living in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula before the gospel, the Bible had been translated into Arabic. So it had been trans. The Hejaz is the coastline along the Red Sea. It had been translated into Syriac there, and they're hearing reports about this, and so they create this epic. It's like the epic of the Arabian people. It's like El Cid for the Spaniards. It's like the Aeneid for the Romans, and it unleashed all of this energy, which manifests itself in conquest, and conquest is the way that the uh, Arabs spread their religion. And one of the first groups that got conquered was the Persians, a completely different culture, a high culture. The Arabs were not a high culture. They were goat herders and camel jockeys. Uh, and so uh, they imposed this uh, truncated mishmash understanding of Logos on this group of people. And it had fatal consequences uh, uh, because of that. So as a result, you have uh, the, the the Persians adopting basically the Nestorian heresy as their understanding of Christ uh, via Islam. Uh, to this day, I mean, uh, my good friend, the late uh, Nader Talabzada, uh, Persian, uh, sophisticated guy who had studied in America, uh, did a film about the life of Christ. It's clearly the Nestorian Christ that he's talking about. This is a Christ who didn't un really understand what was going on because he wasn't God. And at the last moment, uh, they switched him out and somebody else got crucified, probably Judas. Judas got crucified because he deserved it. Well, you're trying to uh, understand a mystery that is way beyond your capacity at this point. And that crippled Islamic, it crippled Islamic thought, and they never got over it. They simply never got over it. They lived... Every time a Persian would try to do philosophy, he had his head chopped off. And so at this point, the Persians backed away and they got involved in poetry and created some of the greatest poetry in the world. But, you know, great poetry. I'm a big fan of art. I talk about poetry in The Dangers of Beauty. Uh, and sometimes the, uh, the artist can achieve uh, what the philosopher cannot explain, but there's no substitute for uh, uh, understanding of Logos if your culture is going to move forward. So they didn't. They just got frozen in their own little world until imperialism forced them to adopt Western 
at least Western technology, so they could make guns to fight the fight the British to keep the British from taking over their culture. Oh, what is what has come out of your um, conversations with the well, with the Iranians? Uh, is there is there hope for them in the sense that maybe they would go back to their roots where they had that logos, the, the inherent logos within them, and accept um, Catholicism? I know that's a long shot, but. I've I've had more success with Indians than I have had with Persians. So I just had a conversation with uh, President Ahmadinejad. Uh, I don't, I don't, it wasn't a meeting of the minds. I was disappointed. I, I think that his advance men, his assistants tried to make sure that no, he wasn't embarrassed by questions that caught him off guard. And so there was a, it was just, it wasn't successful. We need an honest conversation. Now, I did have a real serious, honest conversation with an Iranian woman over the internet for, for years. Uh, and over the course of the time, she completely accepted my understanding of Logos. Uh, the result was that she stopped being a Muslim. Uh, now, all right, I'm not, this is part of what's going to have to happen because Islam is not defensible intellectually. I've already explained why. So at a certain point, uh, she's living in exile. She's feeling down. You know, what do I do? It's like when the Hebrews, what do I, what must I do to be saved? She doesn't quite put it in that way. So I said, well, you got to be baptized. Well, that created an explosion. Like, what's that got to do with anything? I thought you believed in Logos. Now you're telling me some water dribbling over my forehead is going to make a decision, a, a, a difference in my life. How does that fit in with Logos? You're a hypocrite. You led me astray. It wasn't quite that that strong, but there was. I I can explain it. I mean, if you, if you give me time, I th I think that this is why I wrote Logos Rising. Uh, but if, if you're if you think that you by exercising your re rational faculties are going to achieve some type of salvation, you're wrong. It's over. Augustine tried that with Plato and he failed. You have to understand that the Logos came down. That's that's an interruption of philosophy. It was such a great interruption that basically for a thousand years, let's say uh, for over a thousand years, uh, let's say from the time of John writing his gospel all the way up to the time that Aquinas discovers uh, Averroes and Aristotle, Everyone did theology. It was just so powerful. We have to hammer out all these concepts. Uh, Paul had a bad experience at the Areopagus. He starts saying, I'm just Christ, forget that worldly knowledge. I just Christ and him crucified. Well, no, we have to get back to this philosophical tradition. It happened in the Middle Ages and we have to pursue it now, but we pursue a new understanding of philosophy, which is you cannot save yourself simply by thinking certain thoughts. It's not going to work. Coming back to the Jewish question, um, the Catholic Church uh, historically had a modus vivendi in uh, the the secret Judeus non doctrine. How do we how do we get back to that? Can you can you maybe uh, talk a bit about secret Judeus non? Yes. So when the Roman Empire collapsed, the Catholic Church took over the police power in some form or other, a much reduced form in isolated areas throughout Europe. And the first one of the first problems they confronted with was the, the Jews. It's not just theoretical now. You are the 
power, you are the worldly power, uh, let's say on the Rhine, and uh, uh, you've got all of these people here who will not accept uh, Jesus Christ, who are enemies of the entire human race, who are constantly causing problems through things like usury, slavery, all these other types of things. How do you deal with them? Well, the the answer is secret Judeus non, which is a two-part doctrine, which says basically, on the one hand, no one has the right to harm the Jew. On the other hand, the Jew has no right to destroy your culture. And so you have to keep these two things in mind when you're dealing with the Jews. The, the, The biggest breach of this came with Napoleon. And Napoleon had imperial ambitions, and he basically... Uh, emancipated the Jews. What he did was grant Jews in France citizenship. This was a mistake. It was a mistake, and we're still paying the price today for this mistake, especially in the United States of America. Jews cannot be citizens. Now, this is shocking to say this, but if you allow Jews to be citizens, you will end up with the war in the Ukraine. That's exactly what happened because Biden, uh, there are more Jews, there are enough Jews in the Biden cabinet to uh, have a minion. Uh, uh, What the Jew does, the the fundamental problem, the first problem that has to be addressed right now in American government is the problem of dual citizenship. There are people all throughout government who are both Israeli citizens and the United States citizens. This epitomizes precisely the problem that Napoleon ignored. The Jew is never loyal to the country he lives in. He's always loyal to his own tribe at the expense of the country he's living in. And that's precisely the problem we have now. So don't send Anthony Blinken, our secretary of state, to negotiate Uh, with Russia, because Anthony Blinken will begin the conversation by saying, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, which means I'm infallible, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Well, that's not negotiation. That's not diplomacy. And the Jew will wreck diplomacy. We have to get back to some type of understanding as the Jew, as the perpetual alien in any society, as someone, if you leave him alone, he will take over the government and use the American government as the vehicle for Israel's foreign policy or Jewish foreign policy. But then how do we get back to secret non, especially at a time when there is effectively a separation between the church and the state and, and the church seemingly no longer holds on to that doctrine. That's precisely the problem. We are not going to solve this problem until the church starts preaching the gospel again, specifically the gospel on the Jews. So uh, from a point of view of the state, uh, we could say right now, let's put a bill before Congress. Uh, No person who has dual citizenship can be uh, uh, elected to office or a member of the United States government. That's not going to discriminate against Jews. It's going to discriminate against uh, loyal Jewish loyalty, uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, participation, dual loyalty. The second way, uh, from the point of view of the church, is the church has to regain control of its institutions, in particular educational institutions. That means we cannot hire Jews uh, to teach in Catholic institutions. This is a serious problem. I know the. I knew personally the first Jew that got hired at Notre Dame. Knew him personally. He was a, lived around the corner. We spent a lot of time together arguing, 
Uh, and uh, he told me that the only reason he got hired was because they wanted to send him to the Ford Foundation to ask for money. Uh, one Jew is one issue. He would always uh, use the classroom to basically subvert the morals of the people, the students who were there. That's a bad idea. Uh, but secondly, when you get more Jews involved, they take over. Father Hesburgh, the man who hired this man, Sam Shapiro, said to Ralph McInerney, if you let the Jews in, they take over. That's Father Hesburgh. He was right. You can't allow people like this to take in, to take control of your institutions. That's a fundamental uh, tenet of secret Judeus not Fundamental. Every bit as fundamental as you cannot harm the Jew. And, and this isn't something that was applied at one point in history, right? It has been applied all across history. So what's a recent example of um, secret Judeus known? There is no recent example because the church doesn't doesn't apply it anymore. After Vatican II, it simply stopped. It, it ceased to be applicable. The other point is that it's it's applicable when the church has political power. The church has no political power anymore. But the before church, Vatican II, before Vatican II, an example would be uh, the Legion of Decency in America, where basically uh, the Catholics. Uh, everyone in America is outraged at Jewish Hollywood and the subversion of morals that is taking place. The Catholics finally take uh, action and they create uh, boycotts. The Legion of Decency is an organization that will organize boycotts. Uh, Cardinal Doherty called for a boycott of Warner Brothers theaters in Philadelphia in 1933. And the result was that Hollywood, the Jews in Hollywood backed down and they implemented the production code. That is a successful application of secret Judeus norm. That's the type of thing that has to happen again. But the first, the look, the, the Catholics have to uh, take control of their own institutions. I mean, I have grandchildren who uh, went through Catholic high school, and the one book that they all had to read was Night by A. Lee Wiesel. And some of them had to read it twice. This is a piece of... Holocaust propaganda, it's a piece of atheist propaganda. It has no business in a Catholic school. And the fact that it is in Catholic schools, being taught in Catholic schools, is a sign that the Jews control Catholic education. That's got to stop. You're ruining one generation after another of Catholics right now. I have a, a question from uh, our mutual friend regarding Hindutva or Hindu nationalism. Well, much of it, much is made of the influence of Nazism and, and fascism, given the idea of rebuilding the temple in Ayodhya as a necessary step towards bringing about a return of the golden age. Isn't Zionism the key to understanding Hindu nationalism? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're all Jews. I don't care if you're a Hindu, if you call yourself a Hindu or a Catholic. Everyone thinks like a Jew now. And and uh, this is Yuri uh, uh, Schleskind wrote a book called The Jewish Century, calling the 20th century the Jewish century. That's his whole point as thesis. You don't have to e eat uh, rye bread in order to be a Jew. You don't have to like Levy's in order to be a Jew. You can act like a Jew. And I've already told you, if you have an abortion, you become a Jew. You think like a Jew and you vote like a Jew. So why wouldn't the Hindus want to be uh, like Jews? 
Let, let, let me take a step back. The Nazis were Jews. Where did they get the idea of the master race? Who was the original master race? Well, the Jews, uh, Nazis were Germans who acted like Jews because of their, their ethnocentrism, because of their abandonment of Christian principles, and because they felt that they could be ruthless in persecuting their enemies. Hatred is a Jewish virtue. That's right up there with abortion. Uh, we, you can become a Jew without knowing it. That's the problem. And so with what you have in, so what is the natural result of the BJP's uh, support of the RSS and their Hindu fundamentalism? Persecution of Christians, persecution of Muslims. Outrageous. Nobody knows about it over here. Everybody thinks that Indians are like the Maharishi and and we're all Beatles and we all go to the Maharishi's uh, home there and we all play the guitar and put flowers in our hair and, and talk about peace and love. That's the American understanding of the Hindu. Uh, so if you want to correct them to that, I recommend uh, watching Slumdog Millionaires. And how that kid lost his father. It was his father or his mother. I think it was his mother. Anyway, where this raging Hindu mob comes swarming into your place and kills everybody because somebody said somebody uh, disrespected a cow. That's the type of uh, uh, corrective that we have to have here. How did you first? realize the, the the Jewish aspect of um, what's going what what's going wrong with the culture in general uh, how, how did you first encounter it because you started as fidelity um, after being fired as the uh, the professor at St Mary's um, you, you you talked about the the intra problems uh, among Catholics right. uh, and then and then you went into the culture wars aspect how did you then get into the Jews it's a gradual process. So I can't write uh, Logos Rising until I've written the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And I go back and back and back. Uh, the, the turning point. So you're right. I started off Fidelity Magazine because I thought I'm going to talk about the intra-Catholic problem. It's liberals versus conservative. Well, that, that's one way of dealing with it. It's not a very effective way. And my mind started to change when I was appointed biographer of Cardinal Kroll and I was let into the archives of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and started to read the real story of what happened in the 60s. And it's uh, the, the idea that came to my mind was Kulturkampf. This is, it, this is similar to what happened in Germany in 1871 when the Prussians took over the country and started persecuting the Catholics. It, it wasn't internal, it was an external force. And my first uh, uh, idea was that it was the Rockefellers, so it was the Protestants. I, I then read uh, Franjo Tujman's book about uh, nationalism, where he talked about Yugoslavia as a country of three ethnic groups based on three religions. I thought, that's America. That's exactly America. It's a Protestant Catholic Jew as opposed to Serb, Croat, and Muslim, and they're constantly at war with each other. So now I'm starting to see the hidden grammar of, of life in America. And basically at this point, it was Jews and Protestants attacking Catholics. That was the alignment after World War II. And so that uh, freed me of this intra-Catholic uh, provincialism. Uh, that gave me the term Kulturkampf, which I translated into Culture Wars. That's when I started Culture Wars magazine. And so I had now the armature 
the hidden grammar of American life, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. So obviously I'm going to deal with the Catholics. I'm open to the fact that the Jews have an agenda too. And that became apparent to me around 2003 when the Jews drove America into the Iraqi war. The Jews were called neoconservatives, but by this point I was starting to understand uh, the real ethnic grammar of political life in America. What, what's coming up in culture wars? And, and can you maybe um, say a little bit about your latest book, uh, The Dangers of Beauty? Yeah, so as I said, one book leads to another. So I finished uh, Logos Rising, which is how the mind apprehends the uh, uh, being. And I realized there were three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. So the good is morality. And that was, you know, that was the gist of what I started out doing. I talked a lot about the moral law, back, the, the subversion of sexual morality in the United States was a big issue. Uh, I then got to Logos, dealing with Logos, uh, specifically Logos, because it's the only way I could understand the Jewish question. Uh, and once I said that this uh, there was a negative Logos, which is the history of anti-Logos is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Well, what about the history of Logos itself? And that was Logos rising. Uh, so that's two transcendentals. But what about the third transcendental? I started thinking about beauty. Uh, as I said before, it's important because the artist can oftentimes portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And so the crucial turning point in Art is always mimesis. Mimesis is imitation of nature. What happened over the course of the millennia is that the platonic idea, the platonic understanding of nature became obsolete. It was, there are forms, there's chaos. Art is basically imposing forms on chaos, like the temple, which is a triangle, circles, and a, and a rectangle. Okay, that is one way of imitating nature, but the incarnation made that obsolete because Aristotle thought that the world was eternal, so did Plato, which meant if it's eternal, it's probably God. So if it's God, then you believe in pantheism and this cripples any real understanding of, uh, of nature. Once the idea of creation became common, God becomes an artist, and you can understand God by looking at nature because there's a logos to nature. Plato didn't understand that. He felt that it was just chaos. Heraclitus was smarter than Plato uh, but in this regard, but uh, the big change came with the incarnation. And basically you had Christians meditating on the incarnation for about 1200 years when Aquinas comes along, one of the great minds of human history, and he realizes that now there's a, he never wrote a, a treatise on aesthetics. He mentioned aesthetics, but now the change in our understanding of nature creates a change in aesthetics. And so now you don't have to impose anything. You can go and you can look at nature and the form will emerge from nature because he said in his treatise on being, existence calls forth essence. That's the exact opposite of what Plato said. Exact opposite. And it took, a while before that could be digested. One of the men who first people to understand this was Giotto. Giotto broke with Greek models. 
The Greek model is the icon, which has the plain gold background. Now in the background, you had nature and you had drama because nature wa uh, was a work of art. Now, this is exactly what I'm talking about. No one could articulate this at the time. Aquinas did it, but even all the way up to Etienne Gilson in the 20th century, it was a Platonist aesthetic. No one had come up with a, a real, truly uh, Thomistic aesthetic, not even the Thomas. And that was the big shock for me in the middle of this book to realize that Etienne Gilson was not a Thomas when it came to aesthetics. And that was the big breakthrough. And that's what this book is about, to understand that for, let's say, a thousand years, almost a thousand years, no, let's say 800 years, uh, you had artists doing what the philosopher could not explain. All those Italian artists understood intuitively that existence calls essence into being, that existence is the primary issue and that essence is secondary. One, I tried to explain this to a bunch of teenagers and the kids said to me, the map, the terrain precedes the map. That's exactly what we're talking about here. And that's why, uh, I didn't know that until I was in the middle of the book. I just thought I'm gonna talk about beauty and that's the, the shocking conclusion I came to in the middle of beauty. And that's why it's important to this day because there are certain periods in history where you can't, simply cannot tell the truth, you cannot pursue the truth, it's too dangerous. So Persia, I've already mentioned that. If you're a philosopher, you get your head chopped off. So let's do poetry instead. Elizabethan England, if you really talk about the thugs that are in control of the regime, you'll get drawn and quartered. So let's talk about, let's do poetry. Shakespeare does poetry and he sets it in ancient Greece. Germany right now, right now, if you tell the truth about the situation in Germany, you'll go to jail. So let's do it obliquely, you know, through music, stuff like that. That's the importance of art. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Dr. Jones. It, it's been a wonderful uh, discussion. Um, where can people find your work? Go to culturewars.com. Do not Google me. Do not go to Google because you will never find me. Go directly to culturewars.com. All of my books are available there, and you can also uh, subscribe to Culture Wars magazine by going there. October is the, the month of Our Lady, and um, so let's offer up a, a Hail Mary for the conversion of Jews, which is your uh, mission. Yes, yes. In Maybe the name the of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Thank you. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. We'll see you soon. Thank Bye. you. Bye.